chapter 14. In the days of Amphrael, king of Shinar, Ariat, king of Elsasar, Cherulamur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabar, king of Zeboam, and the king of Belar, that is Zor, and all these joined forces in the valley of Shittim, that is, the, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the, four, in the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zusim in, in Ham, the Iman in Sheveth, Kiramthith. Woo! And the Horites in the, their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran and the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, wow, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. And then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Shittim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, and Raphael, king of Shinar, and Ariat, king of Elsasar, four kings against the five. Now the valley of Shittim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been Taken captive, captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided the forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobod, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the woman and the people. After his return from the defeat, of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons. But take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share.
confession to make. Um, I always said I would never do this, um, but I went to Google to look for a sermon illustration. I always said I was never going to do it. I wasn't going to break down and go look for an example somewhere else, but I did it. Um, so you're going to have to bear with me. Um, but if you ever feel like you missed the big picture of what's going on, I think that, that as, as humans, we, we are very quick to see a small picture, the, the small picture of what's going on, but we, we miss the big picture. And last week I talked about spring training, how it's an exciting time of year, one of my favorite times of year, as baseball season is starting. And so I'm going to go back to a baseball reference. And so if you don't like baseball or you're not up with the strategy involved, uh, bear with me. I'll try to explain as best I can. But I really think this will um, help us as we go this morning. So... Earl Weaver was a very famous baseball manager. Um, one of the teams he managed was the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, he, he's very, very well known, but he had a rule for his team that his players were not allowed to steal a base unless they were told from the dugout that they were to steal. They had to receive a sign from the dugout that said, all right, go steal second base, go steal third base. And until that happened, they, they were not to steal. Well, Earl Weaver also coached Reggie Jackson, who was a Hall of Fame baseball player, a really, really good baseball player. And like a lot of good baseball players, those that are the, at the top, they think they knew no better than their coach. And so the, the specific example is of Earl Weaver, uh, sorry, Reggie Jackson, deciding to steal second base on his own. He thought, I'm a good base runner. I, 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 can, I can do it. He gets a good jump, and he steals second base, slides in safe, no problems. He stands up with a big grin on his face, looking into the dugout and like, ha, I did it. I just advanced myself into scoring position. I just did this for my team. I was safe. I successfully did what I was going to do. And the story, the story goes on. Earl Weaver later on, in the, after the game, pulls Reggie Jackson aside and says, let me tell you the big picture of what just happened. You saw the small picture. What you saw was the, the path between first base and second base, is that being your obstacle. But what you didn't see was that the guy batting right behind you was the second best player on the team. If anyone was going to drive you in, it was going to be this guy. But as Reggie Jackson stole second base, first base is open. So what does the team do? They, they automatically, they intentionally walk the next batter who was really good. The third batter has had no success against this pitcher. None. So Earl Weaver then feels compelled to throw in a pinch hitter to bat for that third guy, then leaving him with a very short bench and not many people to use for the rest of the game. So Earl, again, Reggie Jackson saw the short term. He saw the small picture. He saw his obstacle, first base to second base. But the big picture, the whole game strategy to win the game was the manager's job. He was, supposed to, he was calling the shots because his objective was not to seal a base. His objective was to win the game and to put his team in position to do that. And so I use that just to get us started because I think that we too have often have very short-term goals. We, have, we see a very limited picture. And specifically this morning, what I want to show, what I think we'll see as we look at this a little bit more in depth, is that I think is that we have a very small view, often a very small view of what God is doing in the world. I think we see ourselves we want to see what God is doing in our lives, but we often miss the big picture. Just like Reggie Jackson, I think that we miss the big picture. So what I want to 
go back and recap a little bit of what happened um, here in Genesis 14. I'm not going to go back and read through all those names again, um, but just kind of recap to make sure that we're all on the same page as to what happened. So essentially what you see is the first war that's recorded in Scripture. Um, you see the, these kings have been serving other kings. They, it says in the, the, the 13th year of this, they, they rebel against the other kings. And we don't get a whole lot of details. We get just a handful of verses that kind of lay out what happened, um, what kings lost, what kings won. Um, but the, the important verse is in verse, not they're all important, but the specific verse I want to point out is verse 12. It says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, in his possessions, and they went their way. And it notice specifically says, Lot, the son of Abram's brother, tying in the story to where we've been the last three weeks, looking at the, the line of Abram, looking at God revealing himself to Abram in chapter 12, we saw chapter 13, and now in 14. So it ties that in here. And then we see in verse 13 that someone escaped that battle and went and told Abram what had happened. And I don't know if anyone else has thought this as we've been reading through Genesis so far with Abram, but and I think we're going to see the same thing over the course of his life, that Abram was one to, 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 to do, to fix, to, to kind of take action. We saw that last week. He wasn't okay with just trusting God to provide and to, to keep him safe in Egypt. He took it into his own hands. He went and said, that's not my wife, that's my sister. I'm, he's worried about his own life. But I, I, we continually see this through Abram's life. It's him taking things into his own hands. And my goal in this is not saying that Abram was wrong to go and get Lot back. That's not at all the point. I'm just trying to say that, that he's, he takes things in his own hands. He, he takes action. And that action is going to get him in trouble multiple times. But what we see is that he takes his 318 men from his house. What I think is remarkable. I mean, we, he has a, a family army. He has a family army of 318 men. And it doesn't give us the exact year, how long it's been since... Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when, when God sits in and says to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. We don't have the exact breakdown of how long this was. But we see that in just a couple verses it says, he took these 318 men and he went and rescued Lot. He went and defeated the enemy. They went in at night. They went in and he rescued Lot, all the possessions. And we don't have a whole lot of details other than that. But I've been thinking of this kind of as in the line of, if you look at this as like a movie plot, you've got it all there. You've got the drama of the nephew being, being kidnapped and taken away. You've got the, the conflict there. You've got the resolution when Abram goes in and saves him. But then, at the very end of it, we see tacked on verses 17 through 24. Two interactions that Abram has that are interesting, they're fascinating, There's, it's confusing even. And we see this interaction with Melchizedek, king of Salem. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
It kind of comes out of nowhere, this Melchizedek guy. It wasn't mentioned earlier on. It hasn't been mentioned this far in Scripture. And it says that he was, a, he was a king of Salem. He was priest of God Most High. Then he comes and he blesses Abraham. He blesses God. And I'll be honest, when I first knew that I was, that I was going to be preaching on this passage, I was like, oh man, that, that passage is confusing. Like, there's so many unanswered questions about who Melchizedek is. There's a lot of questions, a lot of like, I read a lot this week, and it's like, well, we know this, but we don't know that. We, we, we don't know this, but here's a little bit. Because we see this little three-verse section on Melchizedek. David's going to mention him in one psalm, and then he doesn't show up again until Hebrews, when we see some other verses regarding him. But for, for right now, we're going to come back to him, but for right now, we see that the king of Salem, that's Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, comes before Abram. He provides bread and wine and, and, and blesses Abraham. But then look down at verse 21. We're going to come back. Verse 21. And now it's the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Again, I think we start to see a little bit of a change in Abram here that, that we're going to go through. But he says, I'm not taking any of this. I'm not, I'm not taking this. The people who are with me, they can take their share. I, I'm not going to take anything. So I just wanted to recap what, what the verses, what, what we read. Kind of recap. Like, that's the narrative that we see between Lot being captured, Abram going, rescuing him, and then there's these interactions with the king of Sodom and with Melchizedek. And again, I really spent a lot of time thinking, like, this, is, this would make for a really good movie. You've seen movies that come out, like, there, there was an account of Paul's life. We've seen uh, a, a current movie on... Um, was it Noah's Ark and different things like that? I was thinking, like, I spent way too much time one morning thinking of who would play the different actors. Um, probably not helpful. But, like, the storyline, I pictured Saving Private Ryan almost, like going in to go rescue someone out and thinking, I went back and looked that Abraham would have been 75 to 85 at this point. Tom Hanks is probably that old. I mean, he's getting really old. I was thinking, I don't know, he's probably 60. I don't know. But I picture... I make sure like, you have the plot line. You have the drama. You have a little bit of mystery with Melchizedek. You've got kind of everything there. But I want you to think back to Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 14. What we've seen with the life of Abraham thus far. <coughs> we saw God calls Abram out of the land. He calls him and says, I'm going to send you to a new land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you all these offspring. I'm going to make you a great nation. But remember, these promises that God gave to Abram was not a promise of life being easy, of life being smooth. That, that wasn't in the promise. Like, right after he makes the promise, right after he makes the promise, we see he's in a land of famine. Abram goes to Egypt. Then he passes his wife off as his sister. Now he's going to war. 
Like, there's nothing easy about Abram's storyline. We're going to read that over and over and over again. And I want to make it clear for us, too, that God's blessings do not, do not mean smooth and easy. The Bible does not, equip those two, does not equate those two, and we need to be careful not to equate those two as well. And I think this is a continual danger of, of the prosperity gospel. The gospel that says, if you would just obey God, God's going to give you health, he's going to give you wealth, he's going to give you prosperity, everything's going to be great. Like you don't see that. You see, Abram does have a lot of worldly wealth. You're going to see that. But it doesn't equate to the prosperity gospel. You're going to have everything you need. You're going to have everything you want. You're going to have all these possessions. Like, that's a danger. I think that it's had a huge effect on our world. <coughs> and I think something I've been saying is that Genesis 12 through the really the end of Genesis, we're going to be resuming in on this one family line. It's this line of, of Abram and, and his offspring. We see that all the way through Genesis. But I think the danger of, of zooming in so much as we read it is that I, I caught myself here thinking that this is God's only interaction with the world at this point. That Abram's the only one God's working on. That, that, that God's interaction with the world is only Abraham. Soon to be Abraham. But just because God is revealing himself to Abram, is working through the A Abram's line, does not mean that God's sovereignty over the world, God's control of the world, God's interaction with the world is confined just to Abram. Look at verse 18 again. <coughs> and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who deliver, has delivered your enemies into your hand. Hey, out of nowhere, this guy shows up and starts blessing Abraham and, and, and saying these things. And like, thus far, we've only seen God really interacting with a select group of people. We've seen him with, with Adam, with, with, with Eve, with, with Noah and Noah's family. But now we're introduced to this Melchizedek. Let me tell you what I see here, and then I'll kind of try to show you how I got there. What I see is a sovereign God, an omniscient God, an omnipotent God, omnipotent, all things, this God working all things to the praise of his glorious grace. And you try to, yes, you've been reading way too much Ephesians, because that, that phrase is in Ephesians a lot, and, Yes, that is true, but look at this. At the same time that God is leading Abram to a new land, the same time God is showing his faithfulness to Abram and in all this way, at the same time God is doing this, he's sovereignly leading Melchizedek to the same place in Genesis 14. The same place here. Like, we don't know much about Melchizedek. We don't, it doesn't give his family line. It doesn't give his genealogy. It doesn't give his lineage. It doesn't tell, say how God re first revealed himself to this guy. We see that he's introduced as a king and as a priest. But it's obvious that whatever this guy's story is, God is at work not just in Abram, but outside of Abram. But again, verse 20, Melchizedek says, Blessed be God most high, 
who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Like Melchizedek is giving God the credit. He's giving God the credit for Abram's victory over his enemies. And here's the big point. That God working in Abram's life is not just about Abram. Like there's something so much bigger going on here. I mean, both Melchizedek and Abram are witnesses to God's faithfulness to Abram. You see that? That God, both are giving glory to God because of the success that, that God has given Abram over his enemies. God working in the life of Abram was not just about drawing the praise and the glory from Abram, but also we see it's from Melchizedek. Like, through what God is doing through Abraham, Abram, almost Abraham, what God is doing through Abram is really displaying his glory to the world. Not just Abram, not just Abram's family, but to the world. We see he's already promised in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We saw that back in Genesis 12. Like the ultimate fulfillment of this we see in Revelation, we already see here that what God is doing through Abram is not just about Abram. It's not just about his family. So I think that we are conditioned. We are conditioned to see things through our own lens. We see ourselves as kind of center in a lot of ways. I think we're just, we're just wired to be selfish. We're wired to see ourselves as kind of the center of the universe. But I think that we're very quick to see <coughs> our relationship with God even as what God is doing through me, what God is doing in my life. And we have a, a limited view of what God is doing. I don't think it's wrong to, to seek God and like, God, what are you doing in my life? Where have you placed me? What, what are you doing? I don't think that's wrong. But I think it can be nearsighted if we think that what God is doing in us and through us, that that impact is not greater than us. What, what if, what if God is, what he's doing in your life is to bring him praise for more than just you? Think, think about it this way. What if God and miraculously healing you from disease or addiction or, or whatever God's healing looks like? What if God healing you was not just about you? What if in doing that, in blessing you in that way, in providing healing for you, yes, absolutely, that should draw praise to him from us. But what if in that same moment, he was putting his glory on display for the doctors? and the nurses, and the family, and the friends, and all these things, and all these different avenues. Like, what if your healing was just as much about God displaying His glory to someone else as it was to you? I think we, we, we see it in a limited view. We see so much of what goes on in this, and we're nearsighted. We see the small picture. But God is saying, no, no, my plan is much bigger. My plan is much bigger. Much bigger. And I really do think that when Ephesians 1 it talks about God's working all things together for the praise of his glorious grace. Like, it's no coincidence that Melchizedek and Abram have this conversation. It's not a coincidence that Melchizedek also sees the faithfulness of God 
in Abram's victory. Because at the same time as God was orchestrating Abram's victory when he saves Lot, the same time God was orchestrating Melchizedek to be where he was. And when it culminates, it culminates in God being praised. They were both witnesses to God's faithfulness. And so as I look at this, like, I wonder, like, what about our lives? Because if God is sovereign over all, then that word coincidence probably does not even be in our vocabulary. I'm going to use it a couple times, but not because it's really a coincidence. Could it be, could it be that it's not a coincidence that God has, has blessed you with a certain job, but at the same time, he sovereignly led a coworker, an unsaved coworker, to work at that job as well? Could it be that it's not a coincidence that he has blessed you with a house or apartment, a place to live, but at the same time, he sovereignly led your neighbors to live in that house too that desperately need to hear the gospel? You see, I think, although I take things for granted all the time, the, the house I have, the job I have, the, all the different things that God has blessed me with, I take those for granted all the time. But even when I do like, acknowledge, I'm like, thank you, God, for my house or my job, it's still viewed on, like, thanks, God, for what you've done for me instead of, God, like, what you're doing in the world, the big picture, by my job at ECSU or the house that I have. Because maybe, just maybe, what God has done in your life, the places he's put you in, is to bring glory to himself for more than just you. From your coworkers that we're able to share the gospel with. From our neighbors that we're able to build relationships with and show them who Christ is. I think we are prone, I am prone, to having a, this nearsighted view of what God is doing, how God is interacting with the world. I think I'm, I'm prone to see what God is doing, looking for what God is doing just in my life instead of asking God to show me what he's doing through my life to magnify himself to the world. I think over and over this week during sermon prep, I, I found... Like God really just convicting me over this, and it's how nearsighted I am. Because it's really easy to start thinking of, oh, it was just a coincidence. Like, it was just a coincidence that Brennan and I were here at that first Safe Families introduction that we had here at the church when, when Audra came um, and talked to us about Safe Families. Or it was just a coincidence that each of the eight children were, were in our small little two-bedroom apartment over the first five months. Or it was just coincidence that Two twin four-year-old girls were in our were in our in our house in summer of 2017. Or it was just a coincidence that God gave us a house at the same exact time that He was sending their older sister to live with us as well. Like it wasn't a coincidence that God sent a little two-year-old girl into our home at the same time that He had me preaching on the doctrine of adoption. It wasn't a coincidence that that other family member stepped up and, and welcomed this little girl into their home. 
Like, it wasn't a coincidence. Like, as much as it, like, ripped me to the core, as much as that, that hurt through that process, like, I've seen that none of this is a coincidence. Like, God has reminded me over and over and over again. It wasn't a coincidence when the very next week after that happened, we got a phone call at 11.30 at night about a little eight-month-old baby. But God has just reminded me that, look, what I'm doing is not just about you. Like, it's not just this whirlwind that you feel like you're on. Like, look at what God is doing in the lives of these children. Look at what God is doing in the lives of the biological parents, in the the lives of DCS workers and judges and lawyers. Like, what I'm doing here, what I've called you to do in this is not just about you. It's not just about the way that I've grown your faith through this. It's not just about that. Like, God, the story that he's written for us, the story that he is leading us through is is not just about us. How is he bringing glory to himself by what he's doing that's not about us? This is this example is from the Bennetts, but like I I think for for all of those who've been saved by the grace of God, like this is like we are not unique in this. Like God is is working through each one of us, in ways that are bigger than us. Like, think about all the different avenues where he has you, all the different places he's placed you, whether it's a job or a neighborhood, a church, relationships, all these different places that God has placed us. Like, it's not a coincidence. That word, God is sovereign. God has designed all of this. And I love this, seeing this example, seeing this reminder here that, that the storyline of Abram is not just about Abram. It's not just about Abram. Sure, we see Abram a lot. We're going to see him a lot for the next, I think, like 10 chapters in Genesis. But it's not ultimately about Abraham. And for us, what if we also were able to look up beyond our nearsighted worldview and see what God is doing in us and through us and all around us? And he's, he's, he's working all things together for the praise of his glory. It gets better. It gets better. Look at, again, the interactions that Abram has with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. So we look at the king of Sodom. He offers Abram the spoils of war. He says, hey, all this is yours. Like, he said, I want my people back. All the people that, that were taken away, I want my people back, but all the goods, all that, you take. Listen to what Abram says. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Do you see what, what Abram says here? What Abram is saying here. He's saying, look, you're offering me all these goods. But, what, what, what does he say? I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. <laughs> he said, I don't need your stuff. Like, I've got God who possesses it all. Possessor of heaven, possessor of earth. That, ver- that word possessor can also be translated creator. Either way, God created it all. 
He says, I've got God. And I think what we see is this huge difference from the Abram that we were seeing last, last week. This huge difference that we saw Abram fail. He, he, would, he didn't trust God with his life. He thought he was like lying and trying to protect his life and call, call his wife really his sister. And we saw that even when Abram came up short, even when he, when he failed in this way, that God followed that up with reminding, reminding Abram of his faithfulness. And now we see Melchizedek, this guy who is both priest and king, again reminding Abram of his faithfulness. He, he reminds Abram that it was God who gave him victory. What we see is that through highs and lows, through victory, through failure in Abram's life, God was working in the life of Abraham, of Abram, to bring him to a place of genuine faith. Like, God is working in the life of Abraham to bring him to the place of genuine faith that we read last week in Hebrews 11. It's a faith that rests fully on the provision of God. See, again, so much more than just Abram here. I've said this all the last three weeks, that although Abram seems to be kind of the center figure through all of this, like this is not Abram's story, but this is God's story. It's not a story of faithful Abram, but a story of an ever-faithful God who never fails, who never gives up, who always will remain faithful. I'm going to read this verse again, what Melchizedek says in verse 20. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Like, just in case Abram missed it, just in case Abram didn't see what was really going on, like, lest he forget, lest he go back to that, we said Genesis 11 mindset of the Tower of Babel, that, you're, that you identify with your accomplishments, what you can achieve. Like, just to ensure that he didn't go back to that, Mikhail's saying, no, 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 God gave you this victory. What was accomplished here was not by you. What was accomplished was by God. But who provides this reminder? It's not his wife. It's not the 318 men that he's with. It's not Lot, the one that he rescued. But it was Melchizedek. This king of Salem, who was also priest of the God Most High. It was this priest, this king, that nothing more was said of. He enters the story, he leaves the story. We don't see a long lineage, long genealogy about his family, where he came from. We don't see where, where his kingdom ended. We don't see any of that. We don't see where his priestly line, we don't see any of this. But it's this guy reminding God, reminding Abram of God's faithfulness. What we've seen is that behind all of this, behind everything that's occurred in Abram's life thus far, behind it all is a faithful God. Behind every single part of the story is a faithful God. It's God continuing to remind Abram over and over and over again that even when he fails, God says, I'm going to remain faithful. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to make your name great because I 
have promised to do this. We're going to see this covenant next week that God, is, that God makes with Abram and God makes with his people. But it's, it's just it's a continuation of God saying, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to ultimately... I'm going to ultimately redeem this world that has been so stained by sin. He's continually reminding that ultimately, just like he promised to Eve, just like he promised to Eve, back in Genesis 3, that he was going to send a Redeemer. He was going to send a Redeemer that would come and save those who were spiritually dead, dead in their trespasses and sins, as we've been memorizing from Ephesians on Sunday night. And Abram doesn't see this Redeemer. It's thousands of years away. But as we've said, it's all, all of this. All of this is leading and pointing to this Redeemer. And here's the thing. Like, God has promised he's sending a Redeemer, and he's also sending a Redeemer that is both priest and king. He's sending a Redeemer that is both priest and king. Jesus Christ, the one he would send, his very son, would, would not come from the Levitical line. He would not come from the, Levitical, from the Levitical line as we see later on in the Old Testament. But he would come, and the scripture calls him the great high priest. A priest that does not have to first offer sacrifices for himself because he has no sin. Look at verse, sorry, Hebrews 4, 4.15. Scripture says, For we have a high priest who is unable, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Who is, wow, sorry. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Fast forward a little bit, it'll be on the screen, to Hebrews 5 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus also come as, as a high priest. One one who goes to God on, on behalf of the people. One who would offer a sacrifice, not for his sin, but for the sins of all who would trust in him. Like you, The thing is, though, is Jesus is not just a priest, but he's king. He's king, and one who we see there, his, his kingdom, his, his, his kingship will have no end. You see, Melchizedek, in this passage, it's just this ultimate foreshadowing of the Messiah, of Jesus who would come. Melchizedek would remind Abram of God's faithfulness, but Jesus would come as the ultimate fulfillment of this faithfulness. Like, there's a lot of questions about, about Melchizedek. But what I can say without the slightest hesitation is that Jesus, the great high priest, Jesus, King Jesus, was the ultimate fulfillment of God's faithfulness even to Abram. 
And God is going to show his faithfulness to Abram over and over and over again, all through Genesis. But it's all pointing towards, it's all leading towards Jesus as the great high priest, as the king. Guys, like this, this is huge, the fact that Christ, that Jesus is both high priest and also king. And he's a high priest that's able to simp- sympathize with our weakness. He too was tempted, yet without sin. But now Jesus says, like, I died so that you might live. Last week we talked about it, that Jesus died so that we might not be identified with our sin or with our failure. But we'd be identified by him and him alone. Guys, this, this is just incredible. Incredible news for us. Like, for those who, who don't know Jesus, like, this is huge, that we have one. There is, there is one who understands your sin, has, has, has been tempted just as you are, has been tempted just as you have been, but did not sin. And this same Jesus died so that you might live. This is huge. And for those that like, whose faith is in Christ, whose whose God has graciously shown your need for Jesus, has graciously given you His Spirit, just as we've seen, like my prayer has been, my prayer is continuing to be, and I, I hope that we as a church, as individuals, can also look up from our nearsightedness, that through the grace of God that we can see the bigger picture of what he is doing all around. Because the same God that saves is the same God that is sovereign over all and is writing a much bigger story than you and I can ever imagine. And we're going to respond in just a little bit. Move into a time of response. And I really, what I would encourage you during this time is to, is to first, like, praise Jesus. Like, we have this great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, yet died for our sin, who is king, who in grace and grace alone chooses to save sinners who do not deserve it in any way. But also, I encourage you to, to really to pray and to ask God to, to open your eyes to see what he's doing in the places where he's placed you. Homes, workplaces, relationships, all these things. God is Sorry, we're all this out to the praise of His glory. And what He's doing in our lives, in my life, in your life, is not ultimately just about us. Praise God that it does involve us, but it's not ultimately just about us. I mean, think about it. Maybe that, that coworker that you're maybe thinking about right now, maybe at the same time that God has blessed you with this job, given you this job, the same time 
He's been working on this individual's heart, softening them, showing them their great need for Jesus. Because God is working in so many ways that we don't see. That we don't see. But what would it look like for us daily, hourly, to be seeking his leading on what he's doing? Where where he would have us boldly share the gospel? Where he would have us invite someone over for dinner? Where he would have us go? I think that if we would look up through the grace of God, he would give us eyes to see. I think that we would see him at work all around us. We see a God who has blessed us immensely, but a God who is doing incredible things all around us. So as Tanner comes up to start playing for a couple minutes, I just want to ask you just to spend a couple minutes reflecting on all this. Praising Jesus for who he is? That he would save a sinner like you, like me. But then pray that God will continue to grow our, our, our hearts and our, our love and our desire to see him glorified in the lives of people all around us. That we would see some of the bigger picture and not be confined to our, our nearsightedness. I'm just going to say it one more time. The same God that spoke the world into motion in Genesis 1. That same God who created everything with his word. That God is working all things through the praise of his glorious grace. Your life, my life, the life of the people around the world. God, all this is for your glory. There's nothing that we could have ever done to to earn this beautiful salvation. 